Good morning. It's good to see you. Is it good to see me? Ain't that good to hear, right? Y'all, let's turn into our scripture today, Ezekiel 37, verses 7 through 10. This is going to be familiar for those of us who have been around the church for a while. But if you haven't been around the church for a while, don't worry about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what comes before it and what comes after it later on. But right now, let's turn to 37, verses 7 through 10. This is Ezekiel. He is responding to the command of God to prophesy out of a vision that God has allowed Ezekiel to see. Ezekiel says this, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones of the vision that he has seen, there's been a large field covered in bones that have been abandoned, that have been lying there, been picked clean by carrion, that have been drying in the sun for who knows how long. In that vision, as Ezekiel prophesied, there was a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, and there was, but there was no breath in them. Then the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into those slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Let's pray. God, as we look to your word and as we look to know your heart and your life more closely, more intimately, we recognize that we have a lot of crud that gets in the way. We have worries and anxieties and distractions. And so we pray, God, that now you might take those from our hearts, if only just for a few minutes, and that even through those distractions or worries, that you might reveal to us your truth and that we might be changed by it. We pray, God, that we will be able to hear you through the words, through the noise, through the silence, through the emptiness. And that we might respond by conforming our thoughts and our minds to the goodness of your good news for us. News that is still here for us today as it has been since that first day in creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So believe it or not, y'all, We find ourselves at the end of a sermon series, today at the end of a sermon series, that we began right after the new year started in January, considering how we have been and how we continue to be called by God in our lives today and every day. We started our sermon series by looking at the story of creation and trying to glean from it how God creates things anew through calling. After all, it was by God's words alone that the darkness was first splintered by the first light. It was by God's voice that land was pulled from the water. It was by God's mention that creatures emerged from the nothingness to inhabit the earth. And it was by God's breath that humanity drew its first breath. 
All of that to say is that we can see from the start that nothing has proven to be an obstacle in God's pervasive calling. Not the darkness, not the nothingness, not the chaos, not the mysterious stillness of the unknown. God's calling is pervasive into every circumstance, into every life, including yours and mine. And so we spent the next several weeks examining the lives of those in Scripture who were called from differing circumstances to create a part of God's kingdom here on earth in the space that they inhabited. We looked at Abram and Sarai, two relatively unknown people who gave birth not just to one nation but to many nations at an age where birthing anything new was known to be impossible. We looked at Moses, who was called to lead his people to new life, even after he had first fled his people as murderer. We looked at Esther, who was an orphan who stumbled into the greatest of fortune before she was called by God to place it all on the line in order to preserve her people to experience life to the full. We looked at Samuel, who was called by a voice that he didn't recognize as God's. We looked at David, who was called even when he was absent. And we looked at Job last week, who was called to be faithful even through a time of immense suffering. And time and time and time again, we saw that just as there was nothing that proved to be an obstacle to God's pervasive calling to be created anew, there continues to be nothing in our lives, in our human circumstances, in our character or our lack of character that can repel God's calling to each and every one of us. That's what we've been talking about. And so today, we end our series on what it means to be called and to be called into a new creation by looking at Ezekiel who was a prophet in a time where all of Israel knew that there weren't going to be any more prophets. This vision of Ezekiel's in our scripture for today, how many of you know that scripture, the vision of the dry bones? Just raise your hands for me. Raise them high because I can't see you very well with the lights. Okay, so there's this vision that many people who have been around the church for a long time know, this vision of there being this valley full of these empty dry bones. It's meant to symbolize the emptiness of the people of Judea. This vision happened during the Babylonian exile. It happened during the time where the Judeans were no longer in their own city. In 597 BCE, the Babylonian army forced the city of Jerusalem into surrender and then deported the Judean king and many of those Judean leaders to Babylon, which included in that first deportation a very young Ezekiel, who was set to become one of the more powerful priests in the temple. And then 10 years after that first deportation, Babylon again raided Jerusalem, this time leveling the temple before deporting the rest of those Judean leaders into Babylon. And so as a result, for these deportees who were forced to live in Babylon, the future was nothing short of a black hole into which the people of Jerusalem were destined to disappear. 
One commentator notes that just a century and a half before this, many citizens of Judah's sister kingdom, Israel, had been deported in the exact same way, which had led to them losing their identity and had caused them to fade into the mists of history. Those lost deportees are still referred to by some people today as those so-called lost tribes of Israel, if you've ever heard of that. So for Ezekiel and these people from Judah, this exile was more than just a crisis of physical suffering and losing their communal identity as a nation, losing their government. This exile was also a crisis of faith. And I'm going to tell you why, because it's not going to make perfect sense to us. They thought that it was a crisis. They felt that it was a crisis of faith because the key symbols of their faith, which were the city of Jerusalem, its temple, its people, the Davidic monarchy, these key symbols of their faith had all been destroyed and all had been lost, which meant something very specific to the people in the ancient world. It meant that their deity had lost. It meant that the Babylonian deity was stronger and better and had prevailed. And so in short, in the minds of these exiled Judeans, their God was now dead and they knew it. Their God had failed them and their God had turned out not to be as faithful as that God had promised to be. It was a crisis of faith, not just a loss of identity. And so perhaps we can imagine Ezekiel's incredulity and the incredulity of God's exiled people when the Spirit of God all of a sudden decides to appear to Ezekiel while they are in exile. The start of the book of Ezekiel says this. It says, in my 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day. Get a, po- a point that he's counting how long he has been in this exile, right? My 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day While I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So even though many of us are are the most familiar with Ezekiel's vision in our scripture for today of the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel had three or four visions of God, depending on how you qualify a vision. And one commentator points this out, which is important for us to remember. He says, because we so often do not read the rest of the book leading up to the Valley of Dry Bones, We can have a myopic view of the prophet's own desperation and the plight of his community. We forget that in chapter 24, God had commanded Ezekiel not to mourn the death of his wife as an example to the exiled Judeans of not mourning the loss of their temple. We forget that Ezekiel's audience members misunderstood his visions from God to be his own melodramatic ranting. Oh, there goes Ezekiel again. He's such an attention hog. And we know that from chapter 21 when Ezekiel responds to God with exasperation. He says, ah, Lord God, they say of me, he is just a riddle monger. How's that for a bad word? You see, my friends, everyone knew In exiled Judeans, everyone knew that God could no longer speak to them. So God was not speaking to Ezekiel, let alone had the ability to save them. 
Everyone knew that there was no more good news to be had. God's death and impotency were as common knowledge to them as it is common knowledge to us that the world is round. There was no debating it. Why would you debate it? It was known. Everyone knew from the second that Ezekiel opened his mouth that he was wrong or naive or maybe just plain lying because God could not speak. And then maybe Ezekiel was insane to boot because after all, he was one of these deportees who was living everyday life surrounded by the plain evidence that their God had died. Or if he not died, at least he had been defeated so badly that there was no use worshiping this God anymore. They were reminded of this every single morning when they woke up in their refugee camp down there by the river. Each day that they encountered Babylonians speaking a foreign language or speaking down to them in a foreign language. They were reminded of God's defeat when they couldn't buy their favorite spices at the markets or when they were shown even in the most casual look from a Babylonian that they didn't belong. The substance and the quality of their lives provided them ample evidence that their God was gone. It wasn't even worth debating anymore. Ezekiel had to be blind or just plain crazy to be saying that there was hope to be had, that that God could still speak to them today. I think one of the things that did make Ezekiel convincing, one of the reasons why he was able to have these visions recorded, was because within this vision, there is a deep, understanding of the exile's distress. They were no longer a living nation, but according to this vision, they were a scattered and disorganized cemetery, littered with the bones of their decimated army, bodies that had been slain, then robbed of their valuables, and then left to be picked over by vultures. They were no longer a living nation, and the vision understood that. They had been dead for so long, in fact, that their bones were brittle and sun-bleached. There was no coming back from that. They knew it, but then it turns out the vision knew it too. There was nothing left to be resuscitated. There was nothing left to be claimed. Everyone could see it. No one could deny it. There was the evidence. There was the proof. Everyone accepted it. Yes, it was over. Ezekiel knew it. Clearly he did, and yet he knew that God's pervasive calling would not be stopped by any obstacle, not even death. I have often thought about what it must have felt like to have been Ezekiel, called by God to prophesy in a time where everyone knew better, called by God to declare hope in the middle of an unavoidable, unchangeable sense of desolation. I think it's a little different for us today because so often in our own culture, we value the underdog. We tend to not count the little man out, right? Because the underdog 
can always come from behind, can always throw that surprise punch, can always overcome that unexpected setback. But friends, I want to remind you that this scenario of the Judeans in Babylonian exile is not given the metaphor of a baseball game. It's given the metaphor of a mass grave. The underdog can surprise everyone from coming from behind at the bottom of the ninth, but the underdog can't dig himself up from the bottom of a grave when he's dead. We root for the underdog because our culture already knows the end of this story. We are shaped by this story already. But we can sympathize with those times in our lives or in our society where we know that all hope is lost. It's so lost, it's not even worth talking about anymore. The truth is that the underdog cannot dig himself up It's unequivocally true. But then here comes Ezekiel in this moment, declaring that while the underdog can't dig himself up, God can. Saying that while the underdog can't fit his bones together with new sinews and muscle, God can. That while the underdog can't give himself new eyes and new hair and a new soul and a new heart and a new spirit, it turns out that God can. The underdog can't do it. No question about it. All hope is lost. The underdog can't do it without relying on God, unless that underdog is relying on God. When I was, um, for those of you who are around here in July, I had a preach on this in July. And I was thinking around that time, about how I was glad that I didn't have the same calling as Ezekiel, right? Like, I'm so glad that I don't have to stand out in the middle of people and declare to them that the world is flat and insist on it. I'm so glad that I don't have to be the one to walk into these spaces, these things that we've all agreed upon and say that actually it's not true. And it occurred to me in short order that actually, not just me, but you and I together have exactly the same calling as Ezekiel, issued to us by Jesus himself, both in his first sermon and his last, when Jesus started and said by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then ended by saying, go and make disciples of every nation, and remember that I am with you till the end of the age. Turns out that like Ezekiel, you and me and every Christian on earth were sent by God with the message that there is good news to be had, just like Ezekiel. And just like Ezekiel, we are charged to go and declare that there is good news to be had to the woman who has just miscarried her baby, or to the man who is just diagnosed with cancer, or to the family who has just lost their main source of income. We have been called to declare that there's good news to be had to the murderer who is serving his time in prison, to the cheat who got away with thousands of other people's money, to the racist, to the homophobic, to the sexist, to the child, to the person with mental illness, to the person with a disability, to the person who is an addict, to the one who has gained everything and to the one who has lost everything. We are called to share the same good news that we are nothing without God, that unless God is in the mix, then all is lost, but that nothing 
is too far gone for God's hands. We have the exact same calling as Ezekiel. There are places in our society today where we have all come to agreement that nothing can be done, that all hope is lost, that whatever dream there once was is now unequivocally over. It was a nice idea, but it can't be anymore. There are places in our world where we readily accept that this is just how it is, like children starving in Yemen. We would like for it to be different, but there's nothing that can be done. That's just the way it is. There are places in our individual lives where we have accepted that it will never get better. That this is all that we've got. That that relationship that has grown distant over 20 years or that job that sucks away our soul or that the retirement that left us feeling lonely is just the way that we are going to live our lives now. But my friends, even though we all have places as individuals and as a society and as a community, even though we have places where we have all accepted that nothing can be done, we have that calling of Ezekiel that says, actually, there is something that can be done and we can't do it, but God can. And so how do we get God to be here? How do we turn our attention to the good news that is here in the midst of our most desperate and desolate situations? It's a one-point sermon today, my friends, but the one point is important. Not all is lost. There is good news to be had. And you and me are called to share it. Please join me as we pray. God of hope and God of life, we are people who like to talk about good news when the good news is evidenced around us. It's easy for us to say that things will be okay when we've seen it be okay before. And yet you call us to walk deliberately into those spaces that we all agree are dead and gone. And to say those words of hope and to watch and wait for your creating of the kingdom in our midst. It scares the crud out of us because we don't want to come across as naive or Pollyannish or as insane. And yet you remind us time and time again that the foolishness of this world is your wisdom. So may we conform to your wisdom. May we be fools for your good news. And may you be the one who changes this place to make it on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.